Well, good morning once again. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13? Last week, Dr. Bealey took us through a, a series of four short parables, and uh, those teach us critical things about the kingdom. Uh, but he also did a really good job of reminding us of what the foundation for all of these parables uh, are. He says, uh, Jesus ought to, by this point, have been known and understood. Uh, there's really no doubt from any rational perspective that he is exactly who he says he is. I mean, he has the right birthplace. He has the right birth lineage. Uh, he has the right teaching. He teaches with authority. Uh, beyond that, he, he heals with an authority that they've never seen. He casts out demons with an authority that isn't, he, they've never seen. He raises the dead. He is exactly what the prophet said the Messiah would look like. He does exactly what the prophet said the Messiah would do. And still, the people don't listen. They don't respond. Uh, they want want the power and they tolerate his teaching, but they refuse to respond to him rightly in faith and repentance. And so by this point in Matthew's gospel, what we have is a divide that is becoming increasingly clear. There are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. There are those who are part of the family of faith and there are strangers to this Christ. There are those to whom they have and more will be added and there are those that even what they have will be taken away and what we've seen by this point is that the parables are a further movement toward that reality the division is there and the parables actually kind of highlight and heighten that divide for those who are on the inside for those who are his disciples for those who come to him in faith these parables these simple stories reveal additional kingdom truth it takes the limited understanding that they have and it teaches them something about a kingdom that is not what they expect and that might be difficult to grasp otherwise and to those who do not have to those who continually reject him for those who have no use for this kind of king and this kind of kingdom they're just simple stories with common elements that they understand what he's saying, but they are not able to put together the kingdom truth that he's teaching. And in four short parables last week, we learned two very, very important things about the kingdom. The mustard seed and the leaven tell us that while this kingdom starts small, almost in secret, that it grows to be something that is undeniable. And the disciples needed to understand that. Because as you read through the prophetic passages in the Old Testament that promise a king and his coming kingdom, the kingdom is big, the kingdom is invasive, the kingdom absolutely overthrows and undoes everything on the earth, and it is undeniable in its coming and its power, and Jesus says that is still coming, but it's not now. For right now, you need to understand, precious disciples, that the kingdom is going to be apprehended by the few, that the gate is narrow, that there are few who find it. And it's going to be come into by those that you might not expect. It's going to be fishermen and tax collectors. It's going to be commoners and outsiders. It'll be gained by sinners and outcasts a long time before the king comes in the fullness of his power. And then he gave two other parables, uh, one of a hidden treasure and one of a pearl of great price. And we see that this kingdom has unimaginable value. That it is worth giving up everything that you own to come into possession of this kingdom. And once again, the disciples needed to hear that. Because although you say, what does a fisherman have to give up? A fisherman has to give up, well, in Luke 5, the largest catch that they'd ever have. The tax collector gave up his tax collecting booth. Many of them would be required to give up their families, their place in society. Many of them would be required to give their very lives. The fact is that they were willing to give all to follow him. And he reminds them that it is absolutely abundantly worth it. And how much do we need to hear that message today? When, if we're being honest, we haven't been called to give up much for the kingdom 
at this point, but we can kind of begin to see glimpses on the horizon. And more than that, if we would actually live as kingdom citizens, as we would actually uh, live as differently as we're called to, then it might just cost us something. And we too need the reminder and even the correction uh, that says it's absolutely worth it. That this kingdom is worth giving up everything that you possess so that you might come into it. Today we're going to finish chapter 13. We're going to work through one more parable and then we're going to close the chapter by looking at two very different responses to Jesus Christ. A parable about division and then kind of a, a really an outworking of what that division looks like. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 13. And I'm going to open by reading verses 47 to 50, which is the parable that we'll open with. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 47, this is what God's word says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted into good, the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord, we have one more kingdom picture that you've given to your disciples. And like those disciples that first heard this, we would be powerless to understand this on our own. Lord, these uh, parable truths are a reminder that we're very dependent on you. That in your goodness and in your grace, you've chosen to reveal kingdom truths to those who would never come into it on their own. And so we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word because on our own we have eyes we don't see, we have ears we don't hear, we have hearts that are hard. So Lord, would you change our hearts, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears, and then would you, through the work of your Spirit, give us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need your help to do all of these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. I think in our culture and in our church context, it's hard for us to understand why these parables were so meaningful, so impactful. We sent, normally, we sit in a building. Now we're outside and maybe it's a little easier. Last week, especially during second service, or two weeks ago during second service, when a bird flies in and lands on somebody in the middle of service, which happened, uh, it makes it a little bit easier to talk about things like the birds of the air. But what we miss is that Jesus is here and he's talking to real people. They are in a real setting, and these are people with real problems and real expectations. And part of the reason that the parables are so powerful and so connective is because they don't have to go a long way. Uh, there's not a huge mental gap between what he's talking about and what they're even seeing. He talks about a farmer sowing in his field, and they might have seen one that very day. Today, we're going to go through a parable that talks about fishing with a big drag net, and he is sitting on a boat in the middle of the lake where this would have happened all the time. And so... It, we tend to take it and we talk about these things and we come up with these abstract theological truths that are true, but they fail to drive it home sometimes. And a lot of times that's the fault of the preacher, if we're being honest, and you can admit that it's okay. Uh, but quite often we forget that Jesus is teaching these powerful things in a way that is very uh, tangible, very graspable, very critical to his audience. There's some eye-opening moments here for them. And what we're going to look at today first is the final parable, and it is, it's a parable of separation. It's a parable about division. And then after that, we're going to work through what this division looked like between the disciples and even the people of Jesus' hometown. 
But just remember that as he is talking about these things, they are living it. They are looking at it. They are watching these things happen. And first, what, what we're going to see uh, is this final picture that he gives. Look with me at verse 47. And again, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. That's the final picture. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now let's stop there for a moment because we have to remember, he is talking about the kingdom. Why do you keep saying that? Because we tend to get off track very easily. These are not parables about the church. As much as we might impact the church, as much as the truths impact the church, these are not parables that reveal the truth about the church. These are not parables that reveal the truth about individual believers, although individual believers might be involved in it as they're described as good soil. But this is not parables about what the believers are like. Even this last week, I heard someone talking specifically about the pearl of great price that we went over last week and the idea that God treasures each and every believer. That is a very common interpretation of that parable. The problem is it's completely wrong. It's not believers are like a pearl of great price that God gave everything for. Does God love believers? Absolutely. Did God give the very son to die for their sake? Absolutely he did. Yes and amen. But the kingdom is like a pearl of great price. Not believers are like a pearl of great price. Why do you keep saying that? Because it's easy to get sidetracked in these things. He is telling us about what the kingdom is like. And this time he says the kingdom is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now, there are several different ways to fish. If you are like me, the only way to fish is to go into Vons and get fish sticks, which are also one of the only acceptable kinds of fish, out of the freezer, and you take it home and hook it. Not so with them. They had a few different ways of fishing. One of them, you could take your, your uh, individual line with your hook on it, and you could cast it out, and you can get one fish at a time. Jesus kind of refers to this later on in Matthew 17 when he tells Peter to go and catch a fish, and the fish that you bring in is going to have a coin in its mouth. Fantastic part of the narrative, which we will get to as the Lord wills, and not a moment before. The second kind... <laughs> Another kind of fishing, you could also cast a net. If you look on the front of your bulletins, you can see there, there's a man casting out a net. Uh, that net might be small enough for one man to cast. It might be taken out on a boat for several men to cast and bring in. But that was a, another means of gathering a number of fish together. Uh, this kind of net that we're talking about today is not either one of those. This is more like a drag net. These would be huge nets, some of them very, very large, and the end would be either tied uh, down to a stake in the shore or on a boat, and then they would go out and they would kind of troll the boat in the shallow waters in a very large circle. And as it goes out, the net spreads out, and you can see it casts this kind of circular thing where there's no way of escape. And then once that circle is complete, the men on the shore would begin to draw it in, and that net would draw tighter and tighter, and essentially every living thing in the scope of that net would be caught up together and brought in. And once you bring in every living thing in a large area, then the work begins. And that's exactly the picture that he says. When it was full, verse 48, the men drew it in ashore, and they sat down and they sorted good into containers, but they threw away the bad. You get a whole big batch of a whole bunch of things, and it does not all have the same value. There is some good that is profitable, and there is some bad. These are people that lived under the law. And the law said that not just everything you pull out of the ocean you're allowed to eat, or the Sea of Galilee in this case. Uh, fish had to have certain requirements before they were good fish. They had to have fins, and they had to have scales. Not one, they had to have both. So something like tilapia would be good. Something like a catfish, not good. Fins, no scales. So you would draw them in. Men would sit on the shore, and you would begin the task of filtering through and dividing the catch that you had brought in. The good ones go into containers. They're eaten, they're sold, they are profitable, they are useful, and the bad are simply discarded and destroyed. 
a simple picture. No one in that crowd, no one in this group of disciples that he's talking to would have missed what that part of the picture meant. And then Jesus, beginning in verse 49, explains to them the point of that parable. He moves from the picture, and now he's going to talk about the point. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there are some very, very familiar elements here. If you've been paying attention, and I know that you have, there are some things in here that sound very, very much like the parable of the wheat and the tares that we went through a couple of weeks ago. But in that parable, what was the main point? The main point in that parable was that for now, the wicked and the righteous grow up together. And that the separation doesn't come until at the end of the age. There is a separation coming, but for now, good and evil live side by side. In this parable, it is kind of hyper-focused on the last part of that. It is dealing strictly and solely with that separation, with that judgment that is coming. In other words, we don't have to try and figure out who's manning the nets. We don't have to try and figure out which boats are towing the net and what the boats mean. We don't have to figure out what the different kinds of fish might mean. Jesus tells us exactly what has meaning. The story is focused on gathering and separation, and Jesus says that is what it is going to be like at the end of the age. Not now, but at the end. Not during this time, but when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there is going to be a judgment and a separation that is coming. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And once again, we see that the angels are involved in this work of separation. We don't have a lot of detail about that. Jesus will hint at it at a couple of different places in Matthew. But in our minds, we kind of have this block of how can the angels be involved in something uh, really as severe and sobering as this kind of judgment. And I think a lot of times it's because we really don't know how to picture angels. Uh, we have TV shows touched by an angel where a kindly angel will come and help you through sticky circumstances in life. Uh, we have the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who are the baseball team that you try to get tickets to when the Dodgers are sold out. Sorry, if there's angels fans there. Every Valentine's Day, what do we see? Cards covered up with fat little baby angels with their cute little wings that shoot their cute little pointy arrows and make people fall in love. And we wonder why we can't get our minds around what angels are actually like. Boy, you read through the biblical record and it is not hard to see how the angels could be involved in judgment. Because when an angel shows up, it is a terrifying thing. Angels are powerful. Angels are glorious, not glory like God's glory, but boy, do they reflect the level of glory there. They are pictured as warriors, as mighty God's army, the Lord of hosts. That's the hosts. It is no wonder that when they show up to those shepherds in the field, they have to say, don't be afraid. That's not just a nice thing to say. It's a way of saying, we're not going to kill you. It's okay. We see that if we look at places like Genesis where they're guarding the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. God's keep out sign. We read through the opening chapters, chapters of Ezekiel and we see them surrounding the throne of Yahweh and there are these terrifying visions. We understand that when we read places like 2 Kings and they're surrounding the enemies of God's people on the hillside with fires or chariots. We read what the Bible says and now all of a sudden we see, okay, as the end comes, the angels are part of this separation, and it adds to kind of the gravitas and uh, really the severity of this whole situation. And they're coming, and they separate the evil from the righteous. 
this isn't a story about how many very different kinds of fish there are in the net, about how God's kingdom brings in all kinds of people. Let me remind you once again that as is the common theme throughout every single parable we've been through in this chapter, there are only two types of things. There are seeds that produce and there are seeds that do not produce. There are wheat and there are weeds, there are good fish, and there are bad fish. In every single one of these parables, especially those that focus on the judgment that is to come, there is good and righteous, and there is wicked and evil, there is reward, and there is judgment, and those are really the only two categories. And as this separation occurs, the good are brought in, and the wicked, the bad fish, are cast out. And now we're not talking about fish being thrown back into the lake or into a trash bin. Now we're talking about the final judgment of sinful men. And what does he say? Verse 50, throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we say, do we really have to talk about this again? I would rather not. I'd rather not talk about fire and gnashing of teeth and hell. It's not a comfortable picture. And if we're honest, it's not really the kind of picture the church, much less the world, wants to hear much anymore. We want nice Jesus. We want kind Jesus. We want the Jesus that uh, really brings in everybody with kind of no condemnation for good or bad or indifferent. Now, understand me, please, very clearly, brothers and sisters, Jesus is kind. Jesus is not only patient, he is the perfect example of patience. Jesus is unimaginably merciful. This is the same Jesus who said, come to me, you who are weak and you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will remove the burden and I will take it on myself. I will give you my yoke, which is easy. This is the same Jesus that will go to the cross and bear the holy wrath of God for his people. But that same Jesus talked a lot about hell. Read through the gospel accounts and see how very often Jesus' teachings not only mention judgment, but describe judgment in greater detail than he does the blessing sometimes. He doesn't soften the blow. He says this is a place of fire. This is a place of unspeakable torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you have ever been in a place where you have been in so much pain that all you can do is kind of grit your teeth, you have the slightest glimpse of what this is like, but why? Why does Jesus, kind and gentle, talk like this? Why does he keep bringing up this terrifying reality? Because the disciples needed to understand that. Because we need to understand this. Because we need to be brought face to face with the actual terror of our sin. With the high cost of treason and rebellion against the holy God. In understanding this, it ought to drive us to save others through the work of preaching the gospel this same fate. When we understand this, how much more beautiful does our salvation seem in comparison? When I understand that this is not only what I looked forward to, but this is really what I pursued with everything in me, how beautiful then is it that God would reach down, get a hold of my hard-hearted, rock-solid heart, and change it for him. And so instead of living in the fear of death and knowing that there's a judgment that comes beyond, we live in hope because he took this on on our behalf and he gives us an eternal inheritance instead. So that's the final picture. 
The disciples of Jesus cannot afford to be ignorant of the fact that a judgment is coming. For now, there are righteous and wicked. For now, the good and the bad grow up alongside one another. For now, evil not only looks powerful, but evil looks victorious at times. But such will not always be the case. There is a kingdom that is coming. And when it comes in the fullness of its power, there is a very real judgment that comes as well. Uh, And that division between people, that final eschatological end times division between good and bad actually begins now. Not that the angels come and separate, but once again, what have we been working through really since chapter 10? The idea that people are dividing over this Christ. It is something of a foreshadowing of this final division that is coming, this perfect division that is coming, this perfect separation when God judges. But even now we begin to see the divide and that's what Matthew closes chapter 13 with. We see a divide between the people. Uh, we see a response of faith and we see a, a response that's really a failure. One that is obedient, one is, that is disobedient. So first, let's move into verse 51 and look at the response of faith as we talk about how the disciples respond to this. After teaching all of these things, after interacting with the crowds, and now after interacting in private with his disciples, making sure that they understand these things, giving them these additional parables, look at what he says in verse 51. Have you understood all of these things? That is a very pointed question. If we understand the context, we understand that that is not just a teacher saying, I hope you guys got that. Because what do we know? What do we know that the parables are designed to do? The parables, in part, are designed to show this divide. There are those who have and those are those who don't have. There are those who understand and there are those who will not understand. Those who have ears to hear and those who do not hear. And the parables show that division. So when Jesus asks this question, the answer is very, very important. Because it is actually the visual representation of everything that the parables are supposed to do. So he says, have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. And with that very simple answer, some commentators absolutely lose their mind. They say, how dare the disciples say yes? There's this common theme that this was an arrogant response, that this was a half-hearted response, that how could they possibly understand what he had said? In fact, give him a few chapters and see how they do when he starts talking about his death. Now the problem is Jesus doesn't correct their understanding. And I think it's because they not only answered To the best of their abilities, they answered truthfully. Jesus says, do you understand? And they said, yes. Why do they understand? Is it because they are so mature in their faith? No, give them a couple chapters and we'll see that play itself out. Is it because they understand everything perfectly? Absolutely not. Is it because they have nowhere else to go in the knowledge of their faith? No, absolutely not. But what has Jesus said at the very end of chapter 11? That the Father makes the kingdom known to his people. And that the Son makes the Father known to His people. And what has He said in chapter 13? That to those who have, more will be given. They had a little understanding. And guess what? By the end of chapter 13, they've got a little more. And they're going to continue to grow in that understanding as they continue to walk with Christ. And when the Spirit comes upon them and when they minister to this new thing called the church and when they go and they do this work of the gospel as God has called them to, their understanding will grow And I think we know that not only were they telling the truth, but that Jesus affirms that they do understand because look at what he says in verse 15. He doesn't say, no, you think you understand, but you're wrong. What does he say? He says, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He says, you are like trained scribes and the masters of a house. He gives another picture, not exactly a parable, but a word picture about what they are like and what they will be like. He says, first, you're going to be like scribes. Who are the scribes? 
Scribes were the learned ones. These were the experts in the law. Not only did they know the law, they knew how the law was supposed to apply to the people, at least under their interpretation. Now, that is very, very interesting when you remember who Jesus was talking to because he is not talking to scribes. He is not talking to men and women of great education. He is not talking to men and women of expertise considered by anyone. He is talking to fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, commoners. He's talking to people who have absolutely nothing remarkable about them other than they are identified with the Messiah. And he says, you are going to be like scribes, those who are learned and those who are able to teach others. Not only are you like scribes, you're going to be like the master of a house who brings out what is new and what is old. The pictures of this wealthy master of the house, someone of great possession, someone who is using that possession, his wealth to bless others. And he's able to bring out of what he owns uh, those that are new and those that are old. In other words, he makes good and profitable use of all that he has. So what's their treasure? Certainly isn't money. Go through the disciples. This is not a wealthy bunch. What is it that they do have? To those that have, more will be given. What are they given? They are given an understanding of the kingdom. What is the treasure that they have? It's actually the understanding of the kingdom. And the understanding is that as you have been made wealthy, in a sense, in this understanding of the kingdom, you are able to bless others both by what is new and what is old. What does he mean by what's new and what's old? I think the best understanding is probably they have access to kingdom truth based on what has been written in centuries past. They are uniquely able to do things like, say, Isaiah said that a child was coming and would be born of a virgin who would rule over the earth. Isaiah said that there was one who was coming that would suffer in the place of sinners. Isaiah said that there is a king coming who will rule and reign over the earth. They are in a unique position to take what was old and to bring light and life to it through the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. You want proof of that? How often has Matthew, himself one of these disciples, brought up what Isaiah says to confirm the ministry of Christ? Super fun little exercise for you this week. Read through Acts and see how the disciples interacted with the prophetic writings. It's fascinating. It's completely different than anything they would have been able to do before. They have this understanding of the kingdom that reaches back into what was old, what was a mystery, what was a secret under that old covenant, and now they're like able to bring it out and shine a light on it through the work and the ministry of Christ as he's made them able to do this. And not only do they have what is old, they have what is new. Well, what's new? They have teaching directly from the Messiah himself. You have heard it said, but I say... You've heard it said that the law can make you righteous. You now understand that only Christ can make you righteous. And so they're able to bring in the teachings from the Messiah himself. And so in a really picturesque and really beautiful way, Jesus has said, you who are unlearned fishermen and nobodies are wise like scribes. You who are poor, at least as far as the earth is concerned, now have a treasure of new and old that you were able to share with others. You who are nobodies are now wise and wealthy. But he reframes that in terms of the kingdom. Not in terms of temporary earthly things that fade and fall away. He reframes that in terms of the kingdom and says you have a job to do. Now, that's a first response. That would be the faithful response. And we see all that goes along with that, but that is not the only response. Because the scene changes, and now we're going to see a response of failure. As we move from verse 53, look at what it says. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. So we understand that the scene changes, but the theme hasn't. We've just seen one response. Now we're going to see another. 
From chapter 10 on, we've been dealing with the promise and then the reality of rejection. Now, it's come from the scribes and it's come from the Pharisees. It's come from the crowds, and now we're going to see that it comes even from his own hometown. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? What's his hometown? Way back in chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary returned from fleeing to Egypt, where they were hiding from the wrath of Herod, uh, they returned to his hometown of Nazareth. So that is where Jesus grew up. And even that had prophetic implications that we went over in chapter 2. But now we're coming back to the place where he was raised. These people in this small town of Nazareth would have seen Christ as he did all the things that pertain to growing up. They would have seen him as a young boy. They would have seen him grow through adolescence. They would have seen him become a young man. And now he returns and he teaches in their synagogue and they are amazed. And hasn't that been the consistent response to Jesus' teachings? What did we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? That the crowds were astonished at the authority and the words that he was speaking. He teaches in their synagogues, and they are similarly amazed. Uh, but it's not just the words that he speaks. It's where did that, this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? By now, the word of what Christ has been able to do has gone on to Nazareth. And not only the word, it's more than likely that at least some of that town had seen what he could do in person. Nazareth's about 20 miles from Capernaum, so uh, we read over and over in the Gospels that people were coming from everywhere to see what he was doing. So it's very likely that some of them have a first-hand knowledge of what he was doing. And the question is now, how is this coming from? Where, where is this coming from? How is this happening? We need to understand here that as we look at this rejection, we know that it's a rejection. Their rejection is not based on the fact that Jesus is saying difficult things. It's not based on the fact that they don't understand what he's teaching or that they don't understand where his power is coming from. If anything, the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth is based on their familiarity with Jesus. Look at what they say. Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters here with us? In other words, they know his family. They know that he was raised as Joseph's son. They know that his mother is called Mary, like any other number of women in that town, more than likely. They could point to his brothers. There's James. There's Judas. We know his sisters. We could tell you where they live. In other words, we know where this guy comes from, and we know what he's like. And by the way, once again, we see that Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born, go on to have other children as married couples do, that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. In other words, as the, family, as the town that surrounded this family looked on, there was nothing really spectacular about it. We know who you are. We know where you came from. Jesus, you're no rabbi. You're no highly educated scholar. You're nobody spectacular. In fact, you're nobody from nowhere just like us. <laughs> what they're saying is not, wow, these teachings are amazing. What they're saying essentially is, who are you to talk like this? Who are you to do these things? That's why they ask, where did this man get all these things? He's just a man who is doing things that he has no business doing. And that's why we read what it says there in verse 57. And they took offense at him. He is a scandal among them. 
because to their minds, this is just Jesus from down the block. And by the way, every now and then you'll read about some ancient writing being found that tells us about the boyhood of Jesus and how he heals the broken wings of the birds when he's you know, six years old and fixes other children's broken legs. This really puts all of that down, the fact that we don't know much about the growing up years of Jesus, but what we do know is that they looked a lot like the growing up years of everybody else. Sinless, which would have made him unique, but the scandal, the surprise here, is not all oh, that Jesus. We've had our eye on him since he was five years old. All oh, that Jesus. We knew that he was going to grow up to be something spectacular. It's this, this Jesus is just like anybody else. How could he possibly be who he claims to be? And now you see that they're actually in a very, very similar position to that of the scribes and Pharisees, aren't they? they can't deny that he has power they can't deny that he has wisdom but they're forced to answer the same question where does that come from and the obvious answer is that it comes from God but they cannot come to that conclusion so Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household there's a barrier to belief not because they don't know of him there's a barrier to belief because they do know him their familiarity with him. I had a friend uh, who we worked in the college group at Church of the Canyons together for a number of years, and we went to seminary together, and when he graduated seminary, he went back up to his uh, rural town in central California to do ministry at the church he grew up in. And he said, that sounds really cool, and it is really cool. It's a story of a guy who's faithful to the same body really through his whole life, but he said there were some significant challenges to that because it is very, very difficult for people who changed your diaper to see you as a spiritual authority in their life. It is very, very difficult to give a couple marriage counseling when they heard you say your verses as a cubby when you were four years old. Sometimes familiarity makes it very, very difficult to recognize power, authority. In verse 58, it's very interesting. It says, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That can be a hard thing for us to get our minds around. We read the parallel account of this in Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, he says that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And if we're not careful, we might come away with the understanding that God's power is somehow limited by the scope of our belief. In fact, if you go to any number of churches, I'll use that term loosely, especially in our Western culture, and you hear that if you have enough faith, then you will have fill in the blank. With only enough faith, you will have long life. With only enough faith, you'll experience the healing. With only enough faith, you'll get the job, you'll have the car, your relationships will all be restored. If only you have enough faith. And the other side of that, tragically, is if you don't have, it's because you don't have enough faith. Your lack of faith is somehow hindering God's ability to do great things in your life. Biblically, you have to understand that that is absolute nonsense. And has been from the very beginning. It was not a people of remarkable faith that God brought into the promised land. It was a people who were no better than their parents who wandered and died in the wilderness. On the other hand, you look and you see that there are people of great faith and great obedience who have suffered mightily. Job, you can look at Paul, you can look at any number of the apostles. We could just go to the book of Matthew and we could see how this works itself out. There are times when Jesus responds to faith. That is absolutely true. The centurion demonstrates significant faith 
And Jesus responds to that faith. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years has significant faith, and Jesus responds to that faith. There are other times when Jesus heals with little to no regard for faith whatsoever. When Jesus calms the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you remember the disciples were not there in the boat saying, Jesus, we know you've got this. We're fine. Take your time. When Jesus raises that little girl from the dead, he doesn't wait for her to say, uh, I have faith that you can do anything because, by the way, she can't do anything. God does not wait for us to come to the place of sufficient faith before he saves us. In fact, Romans tells us that he saves us not only while we're dead in our trespasses, but while we are actively enemies against him. God's power is not limited by our faith or lack of faith. So the question is, why didn't Jesus do much there? And the answer is, because we understand what he's been doing since chapter 10 in Matthew, that there's a divide that is coming. And there is a divide that is here. If we've been following along with what Matthew says, this actually makes perfect sense. Because they have eyes to see, but they don't see. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear. What they need in this little town in Galilee is not more proof. What they are missing is not Jesus doing that one more thing that's going to push them over the edge. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Lord, we want you to do a sign for us. Rabbi, do this one thing and then maybe we'll have faith. And what does Jesus say? You're not getting anything. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see the sign of Jonah, which is only going to make sense to those who are mine. And it's only going to happen after I'm dead, something you can't even possibly comprehend. Let's not forget, Jesus does not owe these people anything. That is a hard thing to come to grips with. They have no use for this king. They have no desire for his kingdom. Therefore, they have no claim to the power and the benefits of that kingdom. We would not expect Jesus to come in and pour out the power of the kingdom on a people who have rejected that kingdom. In other words, this response is the one that makes sense. It would be more jarring if Jesus went there and did a number of mighty works in an attempt to say, come on, believe in me. Come on, work, come on. You guys got to see this. Maybe if I do one more thing, Jesus' miracles are not a sideshow designed to draw people in. They're a proof that he is exactly who he says he is. They're an expression of the power of the kingdom that is present where the king is. They're not a party trick to get their interest and their attention. And as a result, uh, they have no right, they have no claim to the power and the benefits uh, of this kingdom. And that's where the chapter ends. A story about a coming division and then two very real-life examples of what that division is going to look like now in anticipation of the final division that is to come. And in fact, that's a common theme through the parables, salvation and separation. Uh, The parables give us a wonderful perspective, but they also give us truths that might be very, very difficult to balance. On the one hand, we have this wonderful encouragement that this is what the kingdom is like, that this kingdom uh, that you really can't wrap your mind around, your limited, finite understanding around, God is going to continue to reveal truth to those that are his, and he'll use common themes and common pictures to bring those with no understanding into a place of understanding. And when he brings them understanding, he actually equips them to do kingdom work, to share in the treasure of their knowledge of the kingdom with others. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But on the other hand, this comes with some really difficult truths to get our minds around, and that is that not everybody who hears the truth responds to the truth. There's difficulty because for now, evil looks powerful and even victorious. There's difficulty because the parables remind us that not only is there a great divide, but that there's a judgment coming. The parables are difficult and sobering because they remind us 
that that judgment will be perfect and that it will be terrible. The parables remind us that reward and blessing in the kingdom are absolutely real, but so too is rejection and separation and the terror of hell. So how do we live in light of these things? What do we do? First of all, we need to be a people who will make sure are giving the whole gospel. We are told, and it is reinforced by everything that our society says, that it is loving to skip over the difficult things. That it is loving to leave out judgment. Let me remind you that Jesus, as the most perfect example of love in human history, was absolutely truthful when it came to talking about the judgment that was to come. It is not loving for us to skip judgment when we talk to our neighbors about the gospel. Does that mean that we walk around with an angry, threatening demeanor? No, but it does mean that I express to them that as much as I desire that they come to Christ so that they might experience the fullness of blessing in His presence through eternity in heaven, that I am careful to balance that with the fact that your response has an eternal implication and that if you reject the reward offered through Christ, there remains only right and righteous judgment. Second, how do we live like scribes who are prepared? If the disciples were those who were not wealthy, but who were seen as having a great treasure to disseminate and give out, uh, we too are entrusted with that same message. And again, spoiler alert, the very end of Matthew's Gospel uh, tells us exactly how to live this out. You're going to go and you're going to make disciples teaching them and baptizing them, and it's going to be to all nations. In other words, we still have that same call to draw out of what we know to bless others with the truth of the knowledge of the kingdom. That is what we do. It's kind of tragic when the church decides to seal itself up and be content with our great learning in these four walls. Not that we're allowed to have four walls right now, but you understand what I'm saying. When we uh, accumulate spiritual truth, when we accumulate theological knowledge, with no desire to turn that into something that blesses anybody. Or worse yet, when we desire to remain in spiritual infancy so that we can't actually explain why the Old Testament matters to anyone. When we are content to ignore two-thirds of our Bible and forget that the old speaks to Christ. Or when we have a very surface understanding of the last part of our Bible where the Messiah himself has told us how then we should live in anticipation of his coming. And finally... There might be those who need to overcome the sense of the familiarity of Jesus. It is a wonderful thing when people spend decades of faithfulness in the church. But there's also a danger that sometimes our familiarity breeds rejection. This is the Jesus we know about. This is the Jesus who was in the boat. This is the Jesus who taught the nice stories. This is the Jesus who did nice things for nice people. This is the Jesus who died, and I don't really want to talk about that, but who lives again and who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Are we ever struck by the reality of who this Jesus is? Are we ever cast face down like those disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration as we're exposed to even a glimpse of his glory through what God has revealed to us? Does this Jesus ever shock us into silence? Does this Jesus ever stun us by the clarity and the power and the truth of what he said? 
Does His mercy ever bring us to the point of tears because it is so beautiful? Does His righteousness and justice ever bring us to the point of desiring to tell everybody about the kingdom because we're so deadly afraid that they might miss out on it and experience this judgment? This Jesus is not the familiar Jesus. This Jesus is the very Son of God. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Lamb and the Lion, all these wonderful pictures that the Bible portrays Him and He is anything but familiar. And some of us need to be shaken out of our understanding of the familiar God that we've grown content to worship with half of our heart. This Jesus demands all that we are and there is no less that we could offer. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often have a small view of who you are. We have a big view of who we are, a big view of our circumstances, a large view of our problems, but a small view of you. Lord, remind us of who you are. After all, where were we when you laid the foundations of the earth? Where were we when you measured off the expanse of the heavens with the width of your hand? Lord, we're powerless to call anything into being, and yet you called all things into being. Lord, we exist by your mercy. We draw breath by your grace. And yet, you have chosen to make the weak and the feeble and the fragile and the finite your children. You've called us sons and daughters. You've revealed the kingdom to us and you have made us children of the Father through the work of Christ on the cross. What a remarkable and unthinkable blessing it is to be called children of God. Lord, break us out of our complacency and bring us to the point of worship and reverence and awe and wholehearted work for you until you come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now as a... We come to the first Sunday of the month. We celebrate communion together. Once again, it's a good time to be reminded that although certain things can become familiar, they should never be familiar to us. Uh, That as we do these things, we don't do them out of a sense of rote or obligation, but we celebrate the work of the perfect Son of God on our behalf. And so in what I'm sure has been a busy week for everyone, uh, a week with a hundred things to do in any given moment of any given day, I want to invite you to take a couple of moments to quiet your heart, to come before this Christ who is the perfect judge and perhaps confess sin that's been entangling and ensnaring your life. Uh, Perhaps it's the time to confess those things. Perhaps this is a time simply to reflect on his goodness and mercy, to worship him for the work that he's done. Perhaps this is a time when you need to think through what reconciliation might look like between you and a brother in Christ that's hindering your fellowship. We want to give you a couple of minutes to do that. So um, you can pray quietly with yourself. You can get together as families and pray through things, talk through things if you need to. Play quietly and we'll come back and we'll take the bread together in a few moments.
And as he writes to the church in Corinth, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, you prepared a body that might be broken. The infinite, the eternal, took on flesh and walked among creatures that he had made. Took on the form of a servant, being willing to bear even the pain of death on the cross. Lord, we praise you for that sacrifice. The perfect obedience of the Son given for ruined sinners. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.